Hey everybody, Noah Gattel here from Movie Night with Will and Noah. Before I start the show today, I just wanted to make a couple quick plugs. The first one is very easy. If you've been enjoying the content Will and I have been giving you these last couple of months, it would mean a whole hell of a lot to us if you would head on over to iTunes and just leave us a quick review or even a rating. It shouldn't take very long, and it really does help people find the show, which is what this is all about for us. And if you don't know what to say, I could give you an option. You could say something like, Noah and Will are amazing. They're the Siskel and Ebert of this decade. Something like that. But don't everybody say that, because then it'll be obvious. Uh, the second plug is for this talk that I'm giving down in Washington, D.C. this week at the Smithsonian. I've been giving this talk for a few years. It's always a lot of fun. It's on the Oscars, and it's different every year, so it will be specific to this year's Oscars. If you know people in D.C. who love movies, this would be a great thing for them to go to. It's this Thursday, February 21st, and you can find tickets at smithsonianassociates.org. And now, it's movie night. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> this isn't a movie. This is reality. There's a difference. Here's one thing I've learned from the movies. Welcome to Movie Night with Will and Noah. It's a pleasure to have you here. I am Noah Gattel, film critic for The Rye Record. And much like the Oscar-nominated documentary, I am climbing free solo today. My co-host, Will Ivanovich, is unavailable, but he sends his best. And I know what you're thinking. Before you start complaining, hey, Will hasn't been on two of the last three episodes. He doesn't seem as committed to the podcast as you are, Noah. You should know it's not his fault. He's got the flu, Okay. And the reason he has the flu is because he's a family man. He's got two kids. And you know how it is when one of the kids gets sick, everybody gets sick. I've got a wife and five dogs, but the dogs don't get the flu. Do they get the flu? I don't know. Well, anyway, today we're going to talk about Isn't It Romantic? I'll be talking about Isn't It Romantic by myself, which is kind of sad and not very romantic. Uh, but neither is the movie. And I'm going to pretend that you're here in the room with me. So before we do that, it's time for our segment, What Did You See This Week? This week, I watched High Flying Bird on Netflix. This is the latest film by Steven Soderbergh, one of our era's true masters of film. He has made things like Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and Ocean's Eleven, and Traffic, and Aaron Brockovich, and lately he's been experimenting with making movies on iPhones. He made Unsane last year with Claire Foy, which was shot on an iPhone. I thought it was okay. It was a slight Hitchcockian thriller about a woman who gets involuntarily committed to a mental hospital. But I really liked High Flying Bird, and I thought the use of the iPhone really fit with the concept. The movie is about an NBA agent played by Andre Holland, who was in Moonlight. And it takes place during an NBA lockout when players, agents, and teams are all losing millions of dollars every day as they work out a new labor agreement. The movie is fairly slow for the first half, but it really picks up when one of the agent's clients plays an impromptu one-on-one -on -one game with another player who he is feuding with. Somebody films it on an iPhone and it goes viral. And this makes the agent, uh, it, it helps him come up with a revolutionary idea, which is that, hey, the players don't need the league. 
All they have to do is stage their own games, charge a lot of money for people to come watch, and voila. He introduces this idea at a sensitive time in the labor negotiations, and well, all hell breaks loose. This makes it sound a little more visceral than it is. This is actually a movie of people sitting in rooms talking. It's got a great script by Terrell Alvin McCraney, who also wrote the play Moonlight was based on, and it the script really blends uh, important discussions about labor issues with personal journeys for the characters. It's really surgical, but I don't want to oversell it. It's a, it's a talky movie. It's clinical. But I also think it's an important movie and an exciting one, and not just because the issues it raises are being hotly debated in all four major sports right now. It's a movie about a revolutionary idea, shot on an iPhone, and distributed entirely on Netflix. There's a marriage of form and function here that makes High Flying Bird feel very, very vital. And so I definitely recommend it. You should check it out. Now on to Isn't It Romantic. I hit my head really hard and I woke up in this alternate universe. And now I have a gay sidekick who's setting gay rides back like a hundred years. I love working the legs. Jesus! And guys looking me in the eyes. You're quite beguiling, aren't you? Are you feeling what I'm feeling? No! Oh my god. I think I'm trapped in a f My life's become a mother f romantic comedy! So one of my colleagues at Washington City Paper, where I also write, described this movie as the scream of romantic comedies, in that it really exists to spoof a well-worn genre. Rebel Wilson plays Natalie, an architect who gets bonked on the head while fighting off a mugger and ends up stuck in a romantic comedy. Her life becomes a romantic comedy. And I would say it's loosely spoofing my best friend's wedding. Uh, her colleague, Josh, played by Adam Devine, has a crush on her, but he gets tired of waiting around, so when he meets and falls for a beautiful model, they decide to get married just like that, and it's just in time for Natalie to fall for him and complications to ensue. Meanwhile, she is fighting off the advances of a rich, obscenely handsome guy played by Liam Hemsworth. Uh, that's the basic plot. The trick is that Natalie is aware she's in a romantic comedy, so the movie has a lot of fun testing those boundaries. She tries to have sex with her suitor, but every time she gets him into bed, it cuts to the next morning, because, of course, there's no sex in rom-coms. They're PG-13 movies. She doesn't know how to sing, and she's really scared of, of doing it in public, but when she gets on, up on a karaoke stage in a key scene, she finds that she can suddenly sing and dance, and that everyone in the crowd has perfectly synced up choreography, as if they had planned it in advance. She also has a huge, lavish New York apartment suddenly, a gay best friend, and a perfect dog. And the movie sort of goes from a very drab color palette to this bright and airy pastel kind of vibe as soon as her rom-com begins. So it's all good for a chuckle, but I can't think of a movie, except this one, in which not one second of it feels like it's really taking place. And I know this is forgivable for the stuff that's supposed to be a spoof of a rom-com, like for that to not feel real. Although... I should point out, Scream always feels real, even, you know, even though you know it's sort of spoofing horror movies. You're still invested in those characters and what happens to them. The whole movie wouldn't work otherwise. And that's really the biggest problem with Isn't It Romantic? Nothing that happens in it feels real, even for a moment. Because Natalie is in a rom-com even before she's in a rom-com. The movie is essentially trading one set of cliches for another. The lessons that she learns that, that true love can be sitting right next to you and you cannot even notice it. 
that you have to learn to love and assert yourself first before you can be good for someone else. These are actually typical rom-com lessons. So there's little distinction in the substance between the rom-com stuff and the non-rom-com stuff, the stuff that happens to her before and after she escapes her fantasy rom-com world. And that's really the movie's biggest flaw. There's two other big conceptual problems I want to mention. Isn't It Romantic really doesn't know if it's denigrating rom-coms or revering them. And it's a problem, but to be fair, this is where we're at as a culture with romantic comedies. There have been tons of articles on why romantic comedies are inherently sexist or at least uh, oppressive to women. The idea that women need a partner to be happy or fulfilled uh, is, is dominant in these, in these films. But at least among critics, there's still a strong push for more good rom-coms. Uh, people miss these movies. So we're in a hard place right now with the genre. It may be no coincidence that the best recent rom-com, The Big Sick, had to put its female lead in a coma for the second half just to make it work. And this movie reflects that ambivalence towards the genre. And generally, I like ambivalence in a movie, but not in a movie like this. Because if there's not going to be any emotional attachment, and there certainly isn't, we need to know what the movie's point of view is. And that was a big problem here. I'd also argue it comes out about 20 years too late. Spoofs like this one, they're, are there needed to take down a genre that has gotten out of control? And since there hasn't been a trend of rom-coms in two decades, this movie's comment, whatever it is, feels very dated. There is no sense of urgency here at all. There's no sense of cultural potency. It's spoofing something that's sort of already dead and has been for a long time, and I felt myself really struggling to care. So let me say some good things about it, if I may. The actors are fine. Rebel Wilson, I, I really like her, but she has very little to work with here as Natalie. It's kind of hard to say what her future is as a leading uh, actor, but she's natural and easy to watch on screen. I, I think I prefer her playing someone a little odd, like she did in Bridesmaids, one of my favorite movies. Adam Devine, as her love interest, is very charming, although he is doing a low-key Jack Black impression the entire movie, and I think it would be nice to see him create something a little more original. I really liked Natalie's wallflower secretary character, played by Betty Gilpin. This character, you know, she's, she's kind of a, a wuss in the first part of the movie, then once the rom-com section starts... Uh, I put that in air quotes, but you couldn't see it. Once that starts, she becomes like uh, Natalie's mortal enemy. The idea is that in rom-coms, women can't be friends. They can only be enemies. But Betty Gilpin's a great actress, I think. She's on Glow right now on Netflix, and she plays a very different character here. Really, two different characters here. She has really good range, and she created a kind of unique energy when she was in this movie. I'd love to see more of her. And another thing it really gets right about romantic comedies is the music. I can't remember the names of all the songs, but they're spot-on choices for those bland, broadly agreeable lady pop songs that populate these movies. Uh, lady in Red is in it. No More I Love Yous. Kiss Me is used in several scenes. It becomes a running joke. And, you know, well done on that count, filmmakers, because that really felt like a lightning rod, like connecting me back to the 90s when I was watching these movies. Now we talk about who you would take to this movie. I took my wife to it, and although I didn't enjoy it much, I think she enjoyed it a little more. It certainly wasn't a bad date night, so I think you could do worse if you're looking to pass a couple of hours with a loved one in the movie theaters, but keep those expectations low. You wear those shoes and wear that dress oh.
Well, now this is the part of the show where we do a draft, but as I am flying solo today, uh, we're just going to make it a list. Since we talked about a comedy in the first part of the show, and since it's Oscar time, it's got me thinking about how the Academy Awards treat comedies. And I think in general, the Oscars get a bad rap in this regard. People like to say the Oscars never, never recognize comedies, and it's really not true. You know, Bridesmaids got a screenplay nomination and a supporting uh, nomination for Melissa McCarthy. Sideways got nominated for Best Picture. Robert Downey Jr. and Tropic Thunder got a nod. Grand Budapest Hotel got a bunch of nominations, including Best Picture. Uh, the Favorite this year got 10 nominations. That's technically a comedy, although it's a period piece also, which makes it seem more legitimate. Um, but even, you know, Marissa Tomei, Mira Sorvino, these are all from comedies. So I don't... I, I don't think it's quite true that the Academy never recognizes comedies, but it is definitely true that there are a lot of great comedic performances that just don't seem to fit into the Oscars, and they should, especially in some years when the crop of other films is kind of weak. So I'm going to just give you my top five comedic performances, films, or other achievements uh, that should have been nominated from this century. Okay? Number one. Sasha Baron Cohen in Borat. Welcome to our country, okay? My name is Borat. Okay, okay, good, good. Well, I'm not used to that, but that's fine. What is a nut jokes? A nut joke, I would say, that suit is black. Not. Uh, this suit is not black. Now, this movie was actually nominated for Best Original Screenplay which is weird because it was like totally improvised and half the people in the movie didn't even know they were in a movie. Uh, But it was nominated, so I give it credit for that. But what Sacha Baron Cohen was doing here was really unique. And to me, if a comedy is going to get into the Oscars, and it's not a prestige comedy like a Wes Anderson movie or something like that, it needs to be doing something really, really special and different. And certainly what Sacha Baron Cohen did here was special and different. And the 2007 Best Actor nominees, where he would have placed, was a kind of weak year. Forrest Whitaker was the winner that year for The Last King of Scotland. The other nominees were Leonardo DiCaprio in Blood Diamond, not one of his best performances. Ryan Gosling in Half Nelson, kind of forgettable. Peter O'Toole for Venus. He's a great actor. He's never won an Oscar, but that was not one of his better roles. And Will Smith in The Pursuit of Happiness, which is just an okay movie. So I think Sacha Baron Cohen could have slotted right in there for any of those guys, and it would have been a better Oscars, and it would have helped the Academy rid itself of its anti-comedy reputation. Number two is Force Majeure for Best Foreign Film in 2015. This is an amazing film. I remember my wife and I went to see this in the theater, and we were laughing our asses off, and we were the only ones in the theater laughing because not anybody else recognized it was a comedy, but it is a comedy. It's been recognized as such, and I highly recommend you check it out. It's about a family who's on a skiing trip, uh, husband, wife, two kids, and they're sitting outside at some sort of cafe patio, and there's a controlled avalanche that kind of gets out of control and comes dangerously close to where they are, and there's a moment of panic when everybody in the patio starts freaking out, and the father kind of runs off and abandons his family to this uh, avalanche. The rest of the movie is the fallout from that. And it's really funny, and it has some really sharp things to say about gender roles, what we think they are, what they actually are. The performances are great, 
And the tone of the movie is very unique. I mean, there are scenes where people are crying, having breakdowns, and you find yourself laughing because the movie has created just enough distance from them to find their troubles. And these are deep, deep troubles. Comedic. Uh, Director Ruben Ostland would be nominated the following year for The Square, which is a very interesting movie, not quite as good, I think. But Force Majeure is really inexplicable that it didn't find its way into this category in 2015. It is currently being remade with American actors. I think Will Ferrell and Julia Louis-Dreyfus have been cast in the remake. So be on the lookout for that. But you really should go back and check out Force Majeure if you haven't seen it. Okay, my number three achievement in comedy that was not recognized by the Academy is Greta Gerwig in Mistress America. Bitch stole my favorite pants. They're in here somewhere. She thinks I don't know, but I know everything. They're red. I'll look here. People are always taking my shit. My ex-friend and nemesis, Mamie Claire, stole my ideas and my fiance. Shit. She took this t-shirt idea that I had, started a company, fucking sold it to J. Cruz, so there's that. She's one of those people that doesn't have any good ideas for her own life, so she just steals all of mine. And then she literally stole my cats. You all know Greta Gerwig now because she directed Lady Bird. She won an Oscar for writing Lady Bird. She had a long partnership with Noah Baumbach, who is or was her partner. They made Frances Ha together and a couple other movies. This is one of the movies that sort of flew under the radar. Uh, it's about uh, a woman and a relative of hers, a young woman in New York. And Greta Gerwig plays uh, the, the protagonist's relative, who is sort of this whirlwind of charisma in New York City. She's a very she's a New York type of person in that she talks a huge game. You're never sure if she has kind of the, the chops, the talent, um, the savvy to back it up. But she's so charismatic nonetheless, nonetheless that you kind of don't care. And it's a brilliantly written film. The second half of the movie sort of all takes place in this one house as the two characters are pitching an idea of theirs to Greta Gerwig's ex-boyfriend, who is very rich and can fund their idea. And it sort of becomes a screwball comedy, almost Oscar Wilde elements in the second half. It's really, really fun and has a unique energy. But Greta Gerwig gives an incredible performance in that she captures the complexity of this character who is both um, very likable and very suspect at the same time. And you don't get to see women play characters like that very often. So I think it, it, it deserved a spot in the Oscar lineup that year. Uh, it was actually a pretty good year for, for female roles. Brie Larson won for Room. Charlotte Rampling was nominated for 45 Years. That's a great movie. Kate Blanchett was nominated for Carol, which is equally great. Saoirse Ronan for Brooklyn. That was my favorite movie of the year. But rounding out the top five was Jennifer Lawrence in Joy. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about Jennifer Lawrence on this podcast before, but I'm not a huge fan of her work. And Joy is not one of her more memorable films or performances. This seems like residue from her win for Silver Linings Playbook. I don't think she really deserved that spot. I would have loved to see Greta Gerwig get that spot instead. Number four, The Death of Stalin. This is a mistake the Academy made this year, and I do not get it. Death of Stalin was my third favorite movie of 2018. It is written and directed by Armando Iannucci, and I'm suggesting, I don't know that it deserved a Best Picture nomination or a Director nomination, but I don't see how it did not get a nomination for Best Original Screenplay this year. This is an incredibly funny, incredibly uh, politically potent uh, script 
about uh, the political maneuvering that goes on in Soviet Union after the death of Joseph Stalin. We've talked about it on here a couple times before. You know what it's all about. But if you've seen the movie, you understand just how tight and brilliant this script is. There's every kind of comedy in the script. Physical comedy, there's political comedy, there's throwaway gags. It's got it all, and it really coheres as a political statement at the same time. Armando Iannucci is already the king of the Emmys. I think Veep has won there many, many times. I don't believe he's ever had an Oscar. His last film was In the Loop, which I don't believe got any nominations. It's really hard to understand why this didn't at least get a screenplay nomination this year. And, you know, there were some great screenplays this year, but Vice and Green Book are both nominated for original screenplay. And I think Death of Stalin could run circles around them. Okay, so number five and my final comedic achievement in film that was not recognized by the Academy is Christopher Guest for directing Best in Show in 2000. That goal is that best in show ribbon. Actually, oh. poodle means um, puddle in German. You want your busy bee? Come get your busy bee. Cut her out if she doesn't get a door, she's gonna flip out. It's not in here. You left it at the hotel. Go to the hotel and get busy bee. That's my favorite, the miniature schnauzer. You'd think they'd want to breed them bigger, wouldn't you? Like grapefruits or watermelons. Don't look at the fat head losers or freaks. You look at me. It's hard to believe that was this century because it's so long ago, but it, you know, it gets in right under the wire as far as I'm concerned. Christopher Guest made a really funny film before Best in Show called Waiting for Guffman. He made some good ones after it. I like A Mighty Wind. But I think Best in Show is the apex of what he was able to do uh, in terms of creating a comedy set in, entirely in a world that is unfamiliar to most people and really harnessing the improvisational talents of an incredibly large and diverse cast of actors. And I don't know that it had been done before, except for Spinal Tap, which he was a part of. Uh, but he certainly created something incredible and memorable in Best in Show, which is widely considered one of the best comedies of this century. And if you're going to honor it at the Oscars, who else do you honor? I thought about Eugene Levy for Best Supporting Actor. I thought about Jennifer Coolidge for Best Supporting Actress, but it's just wall-to-wall -wall with great performers, and singling out any of them seems uh, unfair. Rather, I think Christopher Guest, who is also in it as an actor and is very funny, but his direction, I think, is the, is the right way to honor the film because he really did something that's, that, that hadn't been done before. So I would have loved to see Christopher Guest get nominated in, in 2001 for Best Director, uh, there were some great nominees that year, but Steven Soderbergh was nominated twice for Aaron Brockovich and Traffic, and that just seems unnecessary. He won for Traffic, but why does he have to take up two spots? Uh, give one to Christopher Guest. I think that was a big mistake. So I'll just throw one more out there. I've already given you my top five, but what about Christian Bale in American Psycho in 2001? It's a comedy, technically. I mean, I think you'd call it a satire, but that's a comedy. And he is hilariously funny in it. And it's one of the most committed, incredible performances I've ever seen in my life. I remember reading the book American Psycho maybe a year before that and thinking, how will anybody be able to get this across on screen? And I'm convinced there's nobody else who would even have come close to capturing what he did in that film. Obviously, he has gone on to be one of our greatest living actors who could pick up his second Oscar this year. I think he has a shot, although Rami Malek is, uh, is the favorite at this point. 
But his performance in American Psycho is an all-timer, and I would love to see him get a nomination that year. Okay, so that's it. We'll be back in a couple of weeks to do a quick Oscars recap and probably talk about a new movie and maybe do another draft. I hope you'll join us for that. So until then, we'll see you at the movies. Feel better, Will. You and-